And I've as act- much as I hate Facebook, it is pretty crazy what you can what you can find out. Yeah, yeah. And what it, I mean, I've actually had several of our relatives that have gone to Germany. <laughs> We've got one living relative over there, and she still lives on the home place. No joke. And they've got to go over there and spend the night there and visit with her, and that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Are y'all ever going to try and go over there? If we're going to do it, we better hurry up because yeah. you're getting up there in age. Yeah, you ain't getting any younger. No. I'd like to eventually do some traveling like that. but Well, it's really cool if you can go to where your roots begin. Right. I mean, that's uh, – I've seen a lot of pictures of it. I know if I was walking down the road and seen that place, I could recognize it just from all the pictures that I've seen of it. Right. And it's it's definitely pretty neat. That's crazy. Everybody knows so much about their family history. I don't know nothing. <laughs> I guess we just didn't keep records worth of crap or whatever. Anyways, welcome to the TPH podcast. Today we have Joey Hoffman with Harry Legged Critter Calls. I think we'll just start where we always start. Well, I like to ask everybody for my own personal pleasure. Uh, when did you start predator hunting? Well, I think me and you have talked about this before. Yeah. Uh, and actually I, I kind of got my start when I was about, I'm going to say between 12 and 13 years old, a friend of mine was doing some trapping and I was over at his house and he had a fur fishing game book laying there. About what year was this? Do you recall? Not to age you or anything. Um, well, we just come out. I'm 55. Okay, <laughs> I don't know what year it was. Wait, uh, it's been a long, long time ago. But anyway, he gave me that fur fishing game magazine. Told me to go home and read it, and I started reading it. And uh, while I was trying to do a little trapping, I found that uh, so many articles on varmint calling, and there, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of call makers that were known. Yeah. And, uh, all I seen was weems after weems after weems calls yeah. on those pages. And I, when I turned 14, uh, for Christmas that year, that's all I wanted was a weems call. I didn't care which one it was. That's all I wanted. And lo and behold, Christmas morning, I had one. I didn't even open the rest of my presents. <laughs> I went straight to my dad and I said, dad, which gun can I take? Cause I'm going to try to go find that red Fox. I saw he said, all right, take the 3220, which I knew absolutely nothing about. Yeah. I know it was a short bullet, a short cartridge. And I went out and I thought this is going to be really cool. I had read plenty on the articles, thought I really knew what I was doing. Laid up on an old lake bed up on the bank of it, and I sat there, and I blew what I thought sounded like a rabbit. Didn't really know. I'd never heard one before. Didn't even practice. I mean, I pulled it out of the box and went hunting. Yeah. And I guess I laid there for probably, seemed like 30 or 40 minutes calling, and absolutely nothing. And I was so disappointed. (laughs) I was like, man, I thought they were just supposed to show up. Yeah. I got up and I turned around and there was a red fox sitting right behind me, 15 yards, just sitting there with his head cocked, looking at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I was hooked from that moment yeah. on. 
the fox ran right by me. I got a couple of shots off at it, but that was about it. And I went home, and I was such an excited kid. I mean, I don't remember going from, it was about two miles from our house, and I don't remember driving back home. I was so excited. <laughs> and I told Dad what had happened, and he's like, well, that's pretty cool. After that, I got my buddies involved in it. We started going out. I mean, I don't think I ever really day hunted again, maybe for 15 years. Yeah. We, my buddies wanted to go at night. Of course, we was busy during the day farming and everything. So we'd get off in the afternoon, like, hey, you want to go calling tonight? Yeah, let's do that. And we'd go out, and that call was pretty much the only thing we used besides an old tape recorder that a buddy of mine had. And he had a, I'm pretty sure he had Johnny Stewart tapes. Uh, there was Burnham Brothers, I believe. Mm-hmm. He had a couple of those. Yeah. And we would play those, and, man, we would slay the varmints with them back then. You know, we, we we thought we were slaying them if you killed one or two a night. Yeah. But in, in the area, which is not too far from here, uh, in that day we had bobcats and red fox, and that was it as far as varmints. I don't remember ever seeing a gray fox or a coyote until, really, I was out of high school. Yeah by several years and uh, then we started doing a little coyote hunting but but the cat hunting just that was my thing in the day yeah. I mean I could get cats up to 15 20 feet from the vehicle you know we didn't have the fancy high racks or any of that we just jumped on the back of the pickup set everything on top with us and went to hunting what kind of lights were y'all running well, to start off with, uh, I had an airport landing light. Everybody else had uh, the Q-beams had just come out. You had, I don't remember, I think the low one was 100,000 candle power. Mm-hmm. And everybody thought, man, this thing is super bright. Yeah, I pulled out that airport landing light. And, I mean, it's just, <laughs> you could see for miles at that thing. Yeah. You melt their eyes when they come in close to you. Uh, and we did that for a long time and I burned that light out one night and all we had was a workhorse flashlight. And I don't know if if you've ever seen a workhorse flashlight. I think that was before a lot of people's time. Mm -mm. They were not really bright, but they were the brightest flashlight you could get at the time. And they sold them at the co-op. So we all had them in our pickups and I got down off the back, grabbed that thing. And we hunted with a workhorse flashlight for about eight or nine years. What, what size battery? People probably don't that, even, I even was, heard of the size of batteries at the time. That was a D-cell. Yeah. And, I uh, wish we had a D-cell. People don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> but is this like the big chrome No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Oh. This, this was a, I'm pretty sure it was a two-cell, not three-cell, three-D-cell flashlight. And it had, it was ridged. All the way around, you get a great grip on that light. You'd hardly ever lose one or drop <laughs> one. But we found out that that white light really worked good. Yeah. And then, of course, the fad came in with the red lights, yeah. red lenses. Yeah. And so everybody was going to a Q-beam with a red lens. It, man, you could get them in close. 
I fell into it because everybody else is doing it. Oh, but yeah. in truth, I'm back to white light. Yeah. Because you can identify. The animals are not scared of it. Yeah. And I, I kind of fell back into that because of you and your program and the way y'all have hunted. Yeah. Uh, kind of made me sit down and think where I started from and where we evolved to. And now we're evolving again into yeah. another realm of it. Yeah. And to me, brighter is not always better. I mean, I, I understand with the soft lights, mm-hmm. soft white, you can see a whole lot. A lot of people are still running the really bright lights. Yeah. And I don't necessarily see that as an advantage. From what I'm picking, from what I remember about the old days when we were doing it with a white light, they weren't that bright, but they still blinded the animal. Yeah. What kind of, what was the firearm situation like starting out? We started out, my regular calling buddy had a 12-gauge goose gun with a 38-inch barrel. It was a bolt action. <laughs> and we ran double out buck. Yeah. All it would hold was a two and three-quarter. But the coyote that I remember the best was right at 100 yards. And I mean, Bobby laid him down one shot. Mm-hmm. My choice gun was a 22, Marlin yeah. 39A. That gun, um, most of the cats we called in in this country were under 50 yards. Yeah. We never had a use for anything that would go any farther than that. Right. Uh, but now the country's a lot more opened up. You can't find the brush that we had when we were raised out here. So you need something that'll stretch out a little longer. And yeah. I think my first gun after that was a 220 Swift. Mm-hmm. And I've had one in the gun cabinet ever since. Yeah. About what year did you notice that gray fog started making a, a lot bigger impact around that area? I'm going to say that was in the, the <sighs> mid to late 80s that they finally started coming in. And, and still, it was very sporadic. I don't think they got really uh, widespread until the early 90s. And it was just like an explosion. They were everywhere. Yeah. Hunting through the 80s. Were y'all saving any fur during all that stuff? Yes, definitely. Uh, now, I know in the 80s, a lot of people, because the fur market went, like back in the 80s, coyotes were going for almost $200 and stuff, you know, prime coyotes, obviously. Right. But I figured just about everybody varmint hunting was probably saving fur. Well, we were. Uh, we had fur buyers coming through once a month through Garden City. And we all met up there and sold all our hides. A coon, a good coon would bring you 25. Uh, a good red would bring 45. If you had a gray, he would bring 30 to 35. Yeah. Uh, an exceptional bobcat, if I remember, I would bring you right at two. Uh, but that was only there was only one or two years of that. Yeah. And then it just started going down again. Yeah. But even in those years, a good cat would bring you 100 and a half. Yeah. Pretty much, coyote. For a long time, I remember coyotes bringing forty-five to sixty-five dollars a hide. Uh, and boy, when the fur market dropped out, the varmint hunting or saving hides went out the door. Yeah. yeah. If you wasn't hunting for a contest, you just let them lay where they were. Do you recall the first contest you entered in? The first big bobcat. What year was that? <laughs> They're supposed to come in here at some point. I can't recall. When that first one was weighed, I have, 
I've thought about that a lot, trying to remember that, and I can't pull that out of my memory bank for nothing. But that was that was actually the first uh, contest that I ever entered was a big cat. And I think I've missed four of them since the inception of that contest. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of people don't realize just how many varmint hunters, number one, are in this area. Number two, they don't realize how many people hunt the West Texas big bobcat in this area. Like, it's big. It's big deal. It's huge. Big deal. So you moved on to the 220 Swift. As far as lights go, you know, I know you said y'all got into the cube beam with the red lens. Is that kind of, when the, when did y'all start adopting high racks? When, when did that become a thing? I don't think I had a high rack until 20 years ago. So once again, in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, mm-hmm. uh, when you first started seeing a rack in this country. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've, I know a guy that will probably be in here at some point in time. His dad's probably the one of the first ones that ever yeah. had a calling rack yeah. in this country. And uh, he and I talked about it a little bit. And he kind of told me what they did. And I was like, "That's that sounds like a pretty cool idea. Were they running? So the first one you recall seeing, were they running? It was more chairs then, wasn't it? Yes. Like it was just- yes. My first one that I built was actually a platform that fit over the top of uh, the bed of the pickup. Mm-hmm. And from then, from there, we welded a uh, an old trailer axle spindle as a hub down into the bottom, came up, put a battery box on it, and a piece of seat parallel and bolted two seats on the ends of it. Yeah. And that was our calling rack. When I first got down out here, uh, those <clears throat> dual seat, single hub setups were still pretty prolific, which I still see a few around. Yes. But when I first got down here, well, the first time I hunted with Casey and Nate, they were still running the single axle hub and two chairs set up, which worked great then, you know, naturally things progress. But it seems like everything I look at, because it's hard to find really any good history. I guess varmint hunters just weren't good at taking pictures. Uh, but it seemed like it just about everything I find, like the earliest stuff was probably chairs. Right. It's just. Well, if you want some pictures, I'll get you some. Oh, for sure. Because I've, I've got plenty that we built uh, different setups on the first one. As a matter of fact, uh, the first hunting rig you hunted on in West Texas was one of yeah, those. Yeah. Yep. Two seat, single hub. Yes, sir. Yeah. Hot, the hot bearings become a thing and all <laughs> and, that and jazz. It, after that, it just kind of progressed into. You know, somebody would find a problem. Okay, both of us sitting on this thing. If I'm on something and he wiggles, I wiggle. We got to get this thing where we're both split up. Yeah. And from there, it just it's grown tremendously. You could you can spend all you want to spend yeah. on a yeah. rack these days. That is for sure. You know, racks came into being. Did you did you notice? You know, obviously it was probably like, oh, this is a little bit better when you're a little bit higher. Uh, we have more stable shooting platform. Uh, at what point did y'all really, did the firearms really kind of start changing to stuff that's more long range? Actually, that changed for me when TPH started. Right. Uh, learning more about it. Watching you 
<clears throat> excuse me, watching you, listening to different things, uh, different articles, reading, uh, that really got my way of thinking changed. Yeah. Uh, besides it just being fun to go out there and shoot long range. Right. Uh, now we have different calibers and, and they just keep exploding out yeah. there more and yeah. more and more. And I'm not really a progressive, but when it comes to guns and stuff, I like them. And if I find a new caliber that interests yep. me, that's what I want to do. I want to yeah. go try it. I want to see how far I can push it. When did you start noticing like around San Angelo and all that, the explosion in predator hunting? Do you call what year it was? Within a year and a half of that first big bobcat mm -hmm. contest is where it started. And it grew yeah. so fast. Uh, stores couldn't keep enough in stock yeah. of everything because <sighs> everybody wanted to go enter that contest. Yeah. Uh, how many, do you recall how many teams were in the first one? No, I do not. Uh, I bet we can get all this stuff. From I, oh, I know we can get from Jeremy or. Uh, him or Todd, either one. It was it was amazing to see. I pay attention when I go into a store. Mm -hmm. What's there? You know, is it is there something that I need? So I'm looking through the shelves and everything. And all of a sudden, after that first big bobcat, prices changed a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. Because it couldn't keep things on the shelves. Yeah. Uh, supply and demand. Yeah. Uh, the the ammo. Reloading supplies. I started reloading uh, in 1987, I believe it was. And I got really lucky. I got a few books. And the first loads I tried worked good for me. So I never yeah. had any reason to go any farther. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until... I started in with Texas predator hunting, knowing you and whatnot that I was like, man, I could get a lot more out of yeah. this cartridge yeah. if I just play with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it just so happened that everything I tried the first time worked. Yeah. So I wouldn't need to, yeah. to push it any further. Don't mess with it because it's working. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of people. When I first started reloading, that's how a lot of people still were, which a lot of stuff has expanded and exploded due to PRS popularity and predator hunting popularity. As far as reloading goes, uh, people just want more out of their cartridge and, uh, which now is a terrible time to be in it. But during the original explosion, it was a great time to be in it because pretty much everything was always pretty plentiful. About when did you start making mouth calls? If we can figure out when the first big bobcat contest was held, I can give you an exact time frame on that. Yeah. I think it was the third year of the Big Bobcat. Uh, Brian Trussell and uh, that guy that hunts with him all the time. Yes, Jimmy Jimmy, Jimmy Banks. Banks. Yep, they were there giving a presentation at the Outdoorsman in mm -hmm. San Angelo, and uh, I got with uh, now a good friend uh, Ed. He's a call maker there yeah. in San Angelo. And, uh, we got together and we got talking and stuff. And I kind of wanted to change the tune of one of his calls. And I don't know. I, my idea of a hand call and his idea of a hand call were two different things. Right. And so I went to him and asked him, I said, Hey, you mind if I kind of 
mess around with this. And he said, as long as the design doesn't look like mine, I don't care. Right. And I had a, I'd had a, a mill and a lathe in my shop. It was a, uh, a Smithy two in one, or they called it a three in one mill and drill and lathe. And I was sitting there going, man, I've got that thing sitting back there. It hadn't worked or hadn't had any use in two or three years. Why not turn my own call on it mm-hmm. and try it out? And I did, uh, started sounding pretty good. I figured out where to get my reads from, how to play with them. Ed taught me a bunch about that. And I started playing with them and, uh, I got, got pretty proficient with them. And I believe that's about the time TPH started somewhere yeah. right in there because, uh, I remembered you were doing a lot of testing different products mm-hmm. and I sent a set to you. Yeah. And then of course those got stolen. <laughs> so I sent you another set of them and that's really, uh, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. I've changed the sounds on some of them a little bit, came out with one or two more new sounds, uh, over the years. What people don't realize it's finding a new sound on one while you can make multiple sounds out of any call mm-hmm. or just about any call to develop a new sound that takes time. Yeah. It all has to do with the different length of a barrel, the different diameters of your inside and your outside, uh, a different uh, type mouthpiece on it, how much air you can push in it. And my goal was always to make an easier blowing yeah. mouth call because everyone I ever tried especially when it's cold you don't want to be sitting out there trying to blow on a call for 30 45 minutes i mean your jaws hurt you're out of breath Mm -hmm. especially if you're out of shape (laughs) (laughs) like i normally was but uh, i think i've accomplished that goal with my calls you know getting them to where any beginner can start with them because they don't take a lot of air they're they're very easy and uh i've had a lot of fun building those calls and working with new calls. Yeah. I know you were actually, I'm pretty certain, and I should know this for certain, our first sponsor for TBH. Uh, We've done lots of giveaways together, all kinds of stuff like that, which, and, you know, we sell them on the website, we sell them in the store. They're favored by a lot of people, some of the best Close read mouth calls you can get. Uh, they're my favorites, as you can tell. They're everywhere. Uh, I don't ever go predator hunting without the rodent in my pocket. That's one of my favorites. It's always been one of my favorites. But, you know, there was when TPH kind of come on board just before the big explosion, when which yes. I, I say it's due to the fact that all these predator hunters got on TV. You know, Les Johnson kind of seems like he was the one that, and he might have been the first one. Hopefully, someday we'll get him in here, but he might have been the first one that got on one of the major hunt channels. And that's when we seen there was a huge correlation, direct correlation between growth of TPH and Les Johnson. And, you know, his big thing was mouth calling. Right. So at that point in time, everybody was mouth calling a lot more. And then it's it seems like just based on sales alone, that people have, we're getting back into more people using e-calls as opposed to that 
original huge explosion of one people getting into printer hunting two les johnson was doing his thing uh then you start seeing more predator hunting shows uh Kreiner and fox pro come out with a show and then it was this huge explosion then the market got saturated yes like everybody started making mouth calls and then they were and i say this and i'll say it every day and i i've told the guys at fox pro as far as e-calls are concerned it was a race to the cheapest caller and i think that's where their biggest mistake was is just a race to the bottom is what I call it, as far as e-calls are concerned. And you nowadays, it just seems like more and more people are relying on the e-calls as opposed to picking up a mouth call. To myself, it's, you know, there are situations that dictate, especially daytime hunting, you need an e-call to get the sound source away from you or what have you. But the most rewarding thing and what the one that usually gets everybody hooked is going out with a mouth call, sitting down and calling their first coyote. I would agree. It's just, to me, it's more rewarding doing it with a mouth call. Well, it is. And as human nature dictates, we always want the easiest way. Mm-hmm. And that's the e-caller. Uh, you know, you can set that e-caller out there and you don't have to do anything but watch. Yeah. Uh, and there's, a lot of scenarios that that e-caller is made for that area. You know, yeah. I like, I love hand calling, but I'm never without a Fox pro with me. Yeah. And I do that because I've been out so many times that nothing could be raised on a hand call. Yeah. But yet the first squeak out of that Fox pro, boom, you've got something coming in. Yeah. Um, and it's just the opposite. Some nights. Yeah. You could play all night. And say nothing was out there, but your buddy went out to the same place that same night and hit a mouth call, and they had varmints running everywhere. Yeah, I always say just be prepared. Yeah, uh, don't go out there with one or the other unless you're specifically trying to do something that you want to show somebody. Other than that, stay prepared. Bring both of them with you because you never know how they're going to react. Yeah, I do think that the hand call produces a different pitch that you're I ain't going to say never because I know they're in the works but it it creates a pitch in there that is very hard to get out of an e-caller mm-hmm. and if they can ever get that done I think that's going to be the next e-caller on my list I know uh what's the name of the company they make the comp caller that's Burnham Brothers Burnham Brothers they're supposed to be coming out with something that's like up the it, that's that's the one I'm referring to. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yes, it will. I it will. I just don't. I don't get when it comes to stuff like that. I don't get too. I mean, I'm definitely gonna get one tried. Obviously, I don't get too tied off into it because I mean, some days you could dang their whistle and they'll come in. I agree. Some days they just won't come in. And I don't know if it'll come out before this. I'm sure it will. Me and Jeff, Jeff, uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Nimenich? Nimnich. Nimnich. Are you sure that's correct? Yep. <laughs> yes. He threw a curveball at me because we, you know, when he come down here, it was terrible weather. So we had plenty of time to talk, uh, especially we had much of windshield time too. 
he threw a curveball at me. He was like, you know, we got to talk about uh, my, <clears throat> what I calmly tell people is, you know, whatever's working, use it. And what I calmly, commonly attribute that is pitch. Yes. Pitch or cadence. It seems like, and I've done, we used to keep extensive notes, and I wish I could find that book, but I can't. It just seems like on days when they're coming, there are days when it doesn't matter what you use, but on days when you've kind of gone through the sounds and all of a sudden you start getting them called in. We went through there, and to test the theory, we'd use different sounds, but of the same pitch or the same cadence. And it seems like, to me, those are the only common denominators. But he said, and it was brilliant, how do you know what you, like, how do you know it wasn't going to come anyways? <laughs> and he's right. He's absolutely right. Because I can't go back in time and change the sound. Yes. How do you know whatever, like, once you got into a certain area where they were, you know, hungry or whatever the case may be, how do you know that wasn't going to work? And the only thing I can refer back to is my data. But at the end of the day, you still have that caveat of, well, how do you know? Because you didn't play the other sound. Well, <laughs> I've been into that and tried that myself at one time, just because one sound was producing very well. It was, it wasn't a contest or anything like that. It was just out coyote hunting and one pasture, they were coming to one certain call, finally found the golden mm -hmm. sound, but just for giggles, let's try this other stuff. Yeah. I went back to another call and nothing. Yeah. Zero. Waited about 20 minutes, picked up the good call and bam, they were right there. Yeah. To me, that's kind of a testament to that pitch that right. that's what they were coming to. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you still don't know for sure if he was coming in <laughs> for that first call and just laid up while you yeah. were laid up. And when you plowed the second one, he was sitting right there yeah. at you. There's, I mean, <clears throat> the only way you could actually test this and, you know, really attribute that is by collecting tons and tons of data. You're right. Data doesn't lie, which is why I started that post on TPH. Yes. Which, it, you know, we started at the wrong time. It's kind of in the season. But next season, I'm going to go back to keeping all the data because I do want to know. And, I mean, like I said, to come up with that theory, I didn't just pull out my hat. Like, oh, this is a thing uh, I kept up with gobs of logs for a long time all the way down to drawn diagrams where they came from what they did what moon phases barometric pressures all that stuff the only common denominator was always cadence or pitch cadence meaning like if it was a fast cry or slow cry right pitch being the the highest determining factor always like that's the only i kept notes for a couple of years that's the only reoccurring data that made any sense was pitch the most sense i guess you would say so y'all you also build racks over there in san angelo yes when did you get into that just i'm assuming it was just people knew you well actually what and, actually the way that happened uh when i left the old uh two seat on one hub set up I wanted a little more room because in Big Cat, you know, you could have four people with you. Mm -hmm. So I, I sat there and thought about it and thought, you know, 
I wanted something comfortable because we'd just been through a couple of winters that were pretty daggum cold and windy. So I built this huge box. I slanted the front thinking that's going to cut down on wind, shear, and all this. And, and to be honest, it was pretty comfortable once you get in that rack. But it took me about an hour and a half to load that thing every time. And yeah. it took three guys to do it. And with age comes wisdom. I'm like, you know, there's got to be a simpler design, a lighter design that a guy can build and make it where he can just load it himself. Mm -hmm. And I went and found my supplies, found me a pipe bender to work with. And that's where it all started. I, the racks I built are super light. Uh, they're not that expensive. I can put one in the back of my one ton in 15 minutes be gone hunting. Mm -hmm. I say 15. It takes a little longer to strap them down proper, but uh, uh, they're built two single hubs on the sides uh, where you each got a chair and a bench. Um, and people just started seeing them and said, hey, man, can you build me one like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I want one a little different. So that's not a problem. I mean, I've been welding, I don't know, I'm 55. I've been welding for about 50 years, I guess. My dad would come in the shop and catch me over there mud daubing stuff together. And mm -hmm. he finally, uh, he was having a barn built one day and he said, Hey, he said, I'll pay for your time, but teach that kid how to weld the right way. And ever since then, I mean, I was like, Oh, I was probably about 14 at that time. And, uh, I just got better and better and better at it. And, you know, it's a love kind of, kind of like building calls. It's a, it's a true love of mine. I love being out there in my shop building stuff. Yeah. I want it done right. I want to do it myself. I don't want somebody else doing it because I'm not in control of it, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, it's really worked well. I guess, I guess really we've been building them for about seven years now mm -hmm. and got quite a few out there. Everybody really seems to enjoy them. Yeah. Um, I don't have any sides on them. I don't care for sides too much. I mean, I wish they were there when the wind's blowing, but I like keeping it open in a rail around you to where you're not going to fall off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Other than being stupid. Yep. So recently, well, probably not recently, more recent, I guess you would say you've gotten into a little bit of rifle building. Yes. HLCC gunworks, uh, Something I've always wanted to do uh, is work on guns. And me and my wife sat down one night, and I was telling her, you know, I'm not that far from retirement, from my regular job, and that's something that I'd like to do. When I retire, I can walk out of one job and walk into my barn, and I will by then hopefully have enough people that use me that I can be full-time yeah. just working on rifles, building rifles. Um Built a couple already. I strive for accuracy with them. I want to do them right. Um, mm -hmm. Take my time with them. Uh, right now, as you know, it's pretty hard to get parts. Yep. You wait and you wait and you wait. And you call them and they say, oh, they're, they'll be out next week. Yeah. And two months later, you call them and they tell you the same thing again. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of slow right now. I'm doing a lot yeah. of th barrel threading. Uh, I'll, I chamber... I'll do the, you know, complete build. Um, in fact, I'm going to drop one off with here with you to play with 
see what you think about it. I've got a 224 Valkyrie that I built, uh, 26 inch stainless. It's a seven, one at 7.7 twist. And I have found that it really loves the 8080 LDs yeah. over Vargit. And it's a beginning. Yeah. And I hope, I hope that here in the near future that I get to doing it more and more often and helping people out with what they want. Uh, it's, it's just something to go along with HLCC varmint calls. Right. Yeah. Kind of one-stop shop over there. Trying to make it that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we pretty much, we covered it kind of fast, but I guess we pretty much covered everything. Is there anything else you want to tell us? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that as far as predator hunting, I have learned as much or more from TPH and the website and the questions that are being asked. Some yeah. of those, a guy on his own never thinks of, but this guy thinks about it and gets a response from people. And so if you got any young ones out there getting into tech, into predator hunting, it's very family oriented. Yeah. Uh, the admins do a great job of taking care of anybody mouthing off or anything mm-hmm. in there, but there's so much to learn from that. Yeah. You can go to the questions and answers and find or uh the different uh subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Uh top, you know, you can get just about any question answered you want there and not have to listen to a bunch of crap. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that was kind of our whole goal. I mean that's why I started it. Right. Well my hat's off to you. You've done a wonderful job with it. And I think there's a lot of predator hunters that have learned an awful lot. Oh yeah, by what, yeah. just being on Texas predator hunting. I mean, there's it's just a constant flow of knowledge. I mean, that and you can go back to the search bar and find so much stuff. I mean, exactly. Chances are, over the past five or six years, I probably hadn't seen a new question because it's already been asked. But I mean, it's not just that there's one or two people who are savvy it's you have thousands of people who varmint hunt they're in the same group and typically what you get when you answer ask a question is you get tons of different opinions right now it's just like anything take some with a grain of salt but there are some salty predator hunters in there and they have a lot of good information that's kind of what it's been about and keeping it family friendly and we're always doing giveaways to get people more people involved we're always trying to you know, push the sport forward, I guess you would say, just because we all love it. But, but, I mean. It is one of my first suggestions when I meet a new predator hunter. Mm-hmm. Most of those are going to be young kids, and I like, to, as you know, I like taking yeah. kids out to go hunting. And uh, that's one of my first things. And I tell the parents, look, you can keep it on your phone. Yep. So he's not where he's not supposed to be, but let him look at TPH's page because there's so much useful information there yep and a lot of them have agreed and and i get feedback from them saying man you're right they all that he's got a ton of questions and most of them get answered yep so where can everybody find you just on facebook just on facebook i don't have a website i've never been that kind of person i guess uh that's a little too busy for me right yeah (laughs) But uh, on Facebook, you can look up Harry Leggy Critter Calls. I don't have uh, 
the Haley or HLCC Gunworks on there as yet is I'm I'm trying to make baby steps getting into it right. until I get bigger. Then I I'll probably have a website for yeah. it, but it's going to be later on. Yeah, and I mean, if you're on TPH, Joey's on there all the time, or just reach out to me if you have any questions. And like I said, we sell his mouth calls. We'll always sell his mouth calls. They're great. Uh, they sell them at Alana. And they can just reach out to you. I'm assuming you'll yes. do custom jobs. And yes. Stuff like um, that. I've built several custom calls for people. Um, they'll call and tell me what they're looking for, what they want. And I'll build it up and send it to them. And if it's not exactly what they wanted, they're welcome to send it back. And we'll work with it. You know, there's, there's some of them that have taken a couple of months to get that call just right for a guy. Yeah. And I don't mind doing that. Uh, I do think that I have one of the best warranties in the business as yep. far as the oh, calls. Yeah. So yep. if you have one of my calls and anything goes wrong with it, other than you running over it and breaking <laughs> it, just send it back to me. Yep. I'll repair it and send it back to you for free. Yeah. Cause I mean, stuff is going to happen, but I mean, of all the calls I have yours, the only time anything's ever went wrong is when I did something wrong <laughs> <laughs> or I just lost it or well, you know, what that, have you. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to the rodent call, is you saying that was your favorite? Well, that's one of my favorites as well. It goes, I have one in both of my pickups in my calling bag and usually one in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of guys that uh, have called me a month or two after purchasing one and said, hey, you got a couple of more of them? Yeah. Sure, I got them. What would you do, lose it? Nope. Some friend, buddy kind of deal? Yep. Nope. I want one for both my pickup other pickups yep. and one in my calling box because that's one call i don't want to leave home without oh i've got them everywhere well they all the bags i mean i've killed i've killed more bobcats with that call than i have well it's a close race between that call and just lip squeaks that i have with an e-call or anything right we always start generally always start a stand with the rodent call it's just it's cheap insurance i keep them everywhere yeah and coyotes hung up yeah. Way out there. Usually that I, I get a lot of uh, reports on that. You know, a coyote's hung up out there. Doesn't want to come in. Doesn't want to come in, get on the road and call. And here he comes. I'm kind of like you in the aspect of, I like starting to stand out with it. Yeah. If I know I'm targeting a specific bobcat, I want to start out real low squeaks. And usually that first round of squeaks, you're going to find eyes Yeah. and he's going to come in on a string. Yeah. Very few times. Will they not? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's pretty much good stopping place for this time. We'll have to get you back out here and we'll talk more about the rifles as that kind of goes on. Yes. Well, we appreciate you coming, Joey. Sure. Anytime. Always enjoy being here. We'll see you guys next time.